This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Bernice McFadden, author of nine novels, including Sugar, Nowhere is a Place, Gathering of Waters, and The Book of Harlan, winner of a 2017 American Book Award and the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work. Her new novel is called Praise Song for the Butterflies, which tells the story of a nine-year-old girl named Abeo who lives in a middle-class home in West Africa with her parents. A string of bad luck that befalls Abeo's family causes her father to place her in a religious shrine where girls live as slaves to the older male priests. While Abeo's father hopes the sacrifice will serve as atonement for his family's misfortunes, unspeakable acts befall Abeo that haunt her for the rest of her life. We began the discussion with Bernice McFadden reflecting on how this story came to her. Actually, in the beginning, I did not want to write this story. I'd gone to um, Ghana back in 2007 with uh, the National Book Club Conference. And the group took an excursion to a rehabilitation center. I missed that excursion on that day for whatever reason. And two of the women came back um, in the evening, and we were sitting around having dinner, and they were telling me about their experience. And they kept saying, Tricosi this and Tricosi that. And, and, and they were speaking to me as if, I knew what this word meant. And I said, no, you can. You have to unpack that for me. So they explained that Tricosi was this practice that um, takes place in Ghana when that if a family begins to suffer some form, uh, some streak of bad luck, um, the old traditions encourage them to sacrifice a virginal daughter to the, to the shrine, to the religious um, shrine, uh, the fetish priest, and uh, in doing so, the good look, good luck would then be restored to the family. And I was stunned. I mean, I was like, that still goes on. I mean, you know, throughout history, you hear things like that. I didn't know that it was still being practiced. And so the women went on to say, well, Bernice, you should write a book about this. And as writers, we always... Uh, have people trying to encourage us to write about things that we may or may not have any interest in. Um, and that's not my process. So I explained that to them. But when we returned to the States, I just started doing a little research on it. And I was actually fascinated by the subject matter. And that's how I came to write the story. So one of the things that you did starting from the very beginning is you created a fictional country. So this takes place in a country that I think is pronounced Ukembi. 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 Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to make this a fictional country? In the beginning, it was set in Ghana. The story was set in Ghana. Um, but my publisher, thankfully, had the foresight to send the manuscript to a sensitivity reader, a Ghanaian artist. And her response to the reading was a 14-page editorial letter. And 
what I learned was what I thought I knew, I did not know. So um, African society is very complex and very nuanced, and I had gotten a few things, quite a few things, wrong. So I did go back and change those things, but just to be completely safe, I thought it best to create a fictitious country. This way I could have the freedom and creative license to do and say and write exactly what what I wanted to do. So this word you mentioned in the beginning, Tricosi, which means tro, meaning deity or fetish, and kosi, meaning female slave. So right. this is fetish slaves, and that was the the premise of your book. You had a small girl, so precocious, so lovely, who was just in love with her mom and dad. Her name was Abeo. Can you tell me a little bit about her? So Abeo... Um is nine years old. She's the daughter of um, of, of privileged uh, parents. Uh, she lives a very uh, comfortable life. She has a baby brother. She goes to private school, and and they are Catholics. So she, you know, she goes on and she receives communion, and she's a she's a, a delightful young girl just living her best life and you can be um and so when she's thrown into this situation she's really baffled obviously she's extremely afraid but she's a strong child she's a very strong child and i think that i kind of modeled her after the the women that I grew up with. So the incidents that happen that lead up to her father bringing her to one of these shrines for these young girls to become oh. these fetish slaves is that he there there's two things going on. One is kind of a series of bad luck in his family that we can talk about oh. and the other is sort of the influence of his mother. So the first thing I want to talk about is the relationship between bad luck and superstition and how far you will go for superstition, because there was a very strong belief in this family and with his mother that you have to somehow break the cycle by making some kind of offering. So he finds out that he he has been accused um, by his superior at work of theft. He's an accountant. Uh, so that's the first bad thing that happens. Um, and then his wife trips and she breaks her ankle. And then their young child falls sick. And then the car dies. And then the roof starts leaking. And so his mother, who they have um, brought in from rural, you can be into the city, into the capital. She's there, and she's watching all of this. She's watching all of this unfold, and she says, listen, in order for everything to get set correct again, you need to sacrifice your daughter. It's just something you need to do, you have to do. And so that's what leads him to do this. The mother is very entrenched, meaning 
the grandmother, is very entrenched in the old traditions. This is all she knows. This is where she's lived, as she's lived in the rural areas her entire life. So she's very suspicious of this so-called Jesus Christ. She's very suspicious of this religion that worships one God instead of several. I I think there was also, historically, there was also a car accident that sort of they felt was following the family around, something that also happened. I think it was with one of the mother's relatives. I'm curious about how you write respectfully about this type of superstition. And I'm wondering what you think about that as an author. What do I, that's such a difficult question. Let me answer the first question. I can be nothing but respectful of someone uh, else's beliefs uh, because it's not my belief system uh, does not automatically allow me to dismiss to dismiss it. Um, I'm I'm a writer. I'm a seeker, and I have questions, and I'm curious. So. Um, I don't. I don't want anybody to disrespect any of my beliefs, and so I would not ever disrespect someone else's beliefs. I think that it's important to sit down and have conversations. And if we have these conversations, eventually we can learn from one another. It's all about being informed. So um, that's the first part. Now, what do I think about superstitions? I don't know if I would actually call it superstitions because. In everything, there's some sort of grain of truth, I believe. Um, I think there, I'm a, I'm, I was raised Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, I think Catholicism can fall under superstition. Many would disagree with me. So for me, I just believe in, in kindness and in, in, in love and in respect. And I think that's all the religion that I need. I think that if you, I think that you you get what you give is the bottom line. I think that was a really tough thing for, especially for Wasik Abeo's father, because this was his mother. She had come. He had great respect for her. Of course, he loves her. And he's she's basically asking him to do something that goes counter to his own love for his child. But he he is so fragile in that moment. Um, And I think that he is looking around and he sees that this, this religion that he has adopted for himself, he's praying to this God and nothing is changing for him. So I think in that moment, he decides that he's made a mistake, and in order to correct things, he needs to go back to the traditions of his people. What's interesting is he does this without the knowledge of his wife. She doesn't know that Abeo is being taken to this place. So that is... Mm-hmm. is um. You know, in real life, of course, that's fascinating for a relationship, but also to write about. Can you talk about writing about creating this chasm in their relationship and maybe what insights it brought to you or what excited you about it or what made you sad about it? 
you know, I have a child. She's grown now. Um, and I have friends who, who have children. And what I found fascinating, especially I was a single parent, but especially for my married friends with children, is that usually there was a parent who wanted one thing for the child and then the other parent who wanted something different. So even if we look at what's happening today where some people believe that their children should not be vaccinated and you have another parent who believes this should happen, at some point, I think that parent who believes in it is going to spirit the child off and get that child vaccinated. I have a friend who who has um, two boys, and she did not want her boys to play football in school. The father believed that they should, and he went and you know signed them up for football. So I think that when you have these two dueling heads of the family, there's going to be problems, and, and the child is going to suffer in some cases. It's unfortunate, but true. In this system where these shrines were going on, and, and they weren't legal, they were outlawed by the country, but that doesn't mean that they didn't exist. They, there were thousands of them all over the country. And we see before Abeo goes there, she goes with her family and they do a castle tour of a place where the slaves were kept. And I'm wondering if you can talk about writing this scene and sort of that idea of what colonialism into independence did to these countries. I'm assuming you saw that in Ghana yourself. I did. I, I went to the Cape Coast Castle. Yeah, it was it was a very traumatic experience because thousands upon tens of thousands upon thousands of of um, Africans passed through uh, that castle. They were held in the castle for months at a time, um, and then baptized, <laughs> and then um, put on the ships and sent to the Americas and the Caribbean and South America. Um, It was, I knew that I could not leave that experience out of this story after having had it myself. Um, It is also, I also use it to foreshadow in a way what is about to happen to Abeo. This idea of motherhood, not just um, as a human being, but motherhood as in Africa, the mother of civilization, and how, how for Abeo, her own mother kind of turned her back on her or betrayed her, and then Mother Africa also betrayed her. So these are the things that were swirling in my mind as I was writing that particular section of the book. Do you feel like these shrines that you write about are an outgrowth of that sort of trauma that a country goes through in and trying to piece it back together? Or do you think it's their existence is because of something else? I think they exist because of patriarchy. 
I think they exist to control, uh, demean, and 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 to keep women in uh, places that men feel women should exist. Well, you you have a passage also in there. You know, after Abeo goes to to the shrine, and at first her mother Ismay doesn't know where she went and you have a line where I think she's kind of searching for forgiveness and trying to figure out their relationship and there's a point in there where you're you're sort of seeing from her point of view Ismaye and she's saying you know she never imagined she'd become one of those women who pedestaled their men no matter the error no matter the consequences she certainly never imagined herself a woman, a wife no less, who would side with her betrothed ahead of her child. But there she was doing just that, and it made her sick to her stomach. Can you talk about? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about writing that line and that relationship and that choice that the mother made? I think relationships are very complicated. I grew up in a family of women. Many of those women stayed in relationships with men that I did not believe they should have remained in. I didn't think that the men were, based on their actions, I didn't think that those men were worthy of of my aunts and, and cousins. And um, I think that also, for some women, not all, there's this fear of, striking out into the world without a man. Generations of women were raised to believe that they needed a man to survive, whether that was for protection or whatever other excuse they made up. I think that all of those things were running through my mind when I was writing those few lines. Was it easier or is made just to, I don't know, acquiesce and just give up and be a good wife and forget about this, this daughter that she had raised in order to please her husband? Or, you know, was it societal pressure? Like, I still have questions. Even though it's written, I'm not really quite sure why she stayed. I'm, I'm making excuses for as well. <laughs> I've become one of those women making excuses. Well, that seems, though, kind of exciting to have written a book and still be unsure because writing is such a, I mean, it just goes to show you that just because it's published and out in the world doesn't mean it's ever necessarily finished. Absolutely. Interesting. Well, let's let's go back to Abeo. So once she was dropped off, into this shrine. Can you describe, you know, for the listeners who haven't read this, what was the shrine like? What was sort of the operating principles there? And how did she survive? So the shrine is basically like a small rural village surrounded by, um, uh, surrounded by farms. And so they live in thatched roof huts. Um, they sleep on mats on on the dirt 
floor, and they're required to work in the fields from, you know, can't see to can't see, basically. They're fed what I'll just call grub. Um, they call it gari, G-A-R-I. And usually in, in West Africa, gari is served with, uh, you know, a, a meat or a poultry, but they're just fed this straight gari, which is almost like paste. And um, the, the children, once they have reached womanhood, when they um, experience their first cycle, then basically they're raped. And their children, the children that they produce, are kept at the shrine. And so it's this cycle of abuse, of slavery, of uh, rape. These women, they grow into women, and um, they're not even allowed to leave then. And in fact, if the woman dies or the child dies, the family has to replace her with another family member. Um, it's It's not a happy life at all. Um, there's actually a documentary on YouTube, I believe, and um, the, the woman asks the priest, you know, she says to the priest, I saw this little girl crying. She doesn't want to be here. She's crying. And the priest said, oh, those are, those are tears of joy. And uh, when I saw that, it kind of, brought me back to the slavery that that um, my ancestors experienced here on American soil. And the stories that I've read um, by people who perpetrated that, and a lot of times those stories sounded the same. Oh, they're, they're happy. This is the best thing that has ever happened to them. We saved them. We save them from themselves. Here they have food and clothing and, you know, a roof over their heads. And so I just found that very interesting. Later in the book, this character named Taylor, she's mixed race, very intelligent, went to Howard University, was sort of, I think, experiencing a sort of anger at the white man in America and kind of experimented and and lived some life just dating black men and going sort of making sure she was really in tune with her African-American identity. And Mm -hmm. then she sort of turned, you, you wrote that she sort of turned her hate onto Africa when she started learning about what happened to many of the young girls And she came to Africa with a vague idea that she just wanted to help and ended up being a great savior for many girls. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. her character? Yes, so I I felt like it was important that uh, Taylor be biracial, um, kind of split right down the middle. I I wanted to explore these sort of uh, struggles that uh, biracial people have 
uh, with themselves. I have biracial cousins, and we have these conversations um, about being uh, perceived as black. You're you're a black girl, and dismissing the the white part of this particular cousin. Um, and so I think that there's this type, they live a, a life of like a pendulum swinging between these two ethnicities, these two races. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Taylor also, she was, she was, when we think about midlife crisis, it it's usually has like a negative connotation, but this midlife crisis was really her finding her purpose, not going out and buying a red sports car. <laughs> she found her purpose, and that purpose took her all of all the way to you can be. She really experienced, I guess, a major sea change. One of the things when Abeo does get her freedom and she ends up in America is that she has to, like all women who get freed from situations, she has to overcome this history of violence. And and I don't mean that she forgets it or that it means nothing, but at some point when you've experienced this much trauma, you still have to try to operate in the world. You have to try to fall in love again. You have to try to trust people and work and get educated. And I'm just curious about how you wanted her to overcome these things. How did you try to write that into her character? I think that we live in a world that is, or it seems so, especially now, just completely um, out of order, as the West Indians say. It's just everything seems to be falling apart. Um, And how do how do we keep it together? Um, for Abeo, that's the, she was living in that chaos for so long. Um, I think what really saved her in the end, and this is what I truly believe in my heart, is love. To have someone hold you and tell you that you're good enough that it will get better, um, I think is so important. And I think it's a major component of healing. And lucky enough, for, luckily enough for Bayo, she found herself in a situation surrounded by people who were able to give that to her. And I, I think that's where healing honestly begins. You know, having been in Ghana and standing in that place where all those slaves were kept and, you know, learning a lot about these women slaves, do you have any thoughts about institutionalized violence and how that gets passed through our DNA or how, you know, a whole race or segment or gender of people have to overcome violence for generations? This is a real thing, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I do believe 
that these traumas are passed down uh, through our DNA. I don't believe that people, and I'm speaking, let me speak specifically about black people, my ancestors, and myself, and the generations that will follow. I don't believe that we have had the opportunity or have been given the opportunity to heal. Um, I don't, our, our trauma has not been addressed at all. Uh, we know that it exists. And even with all of that said, we are still here. We are still thriving, most of us, and striving. And, and I think that's amazing. Um, I think it speaks to our strength our physical strength, but mentally and emotionally, I feel like it is, it is wearing, it is really wearing on black folk. And that is, that is certainly a concern of mine. Um, I don't even know if I answered your question. (laughs) Well, you did, and I guess I want to live in a world where that trauma can be addressed and healed and nurtured. And even though our world is in chaos, I feel like I know so many other people that also want to live in a world like that, where Mm -hmm. everyone's trauma can be addressed. And is there something that you can say or that people can do to help create the conditions for that to happen? I think that people have to first believe that 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 trauma exists. <laughs> and, I, and I really feel that um, there's so many ill-informed people, misinformed folk. Um, so that's the first thing. They have to, they have to know that This is a real thing. Um, And yes, I, I, you know, I agree with you. I would love to live in a, in a world that was free of those sorts of experiences. Do you think art plays a role in that? Art? Yeah. In healing? Well, what you're doing, do you feel like what you're doing with your life plays some role in either acknowledging the trauma or finding ways to heal some of yourself or your family or your readers? Um, I guess I think that my art is doing all of those things. Um, people who know me, they're well aware of my politics. Um, I, again, you know, usually when I sit down to, to write, a book is because I have questions that I that I need answers to. And oftentimes I don't know if I find those answers at the end of the novel, but I'll certainly receive a variety of responses from my readers cuz I'll have a question um that I'll develop into this whole story and come out feeling maybe 50% satisfied. And then 
I'll get all of these reviews coming in. I'll get emails from people. I'll say, but this is how I felt about X, Y, and Z. And maybe in that one response, like, oh, there's the answer to my question. Um, I'm addressing and staying in touch with my ancestors when I write. I'm very concerned about legacy. Um, I don't want them to be forgotten, which is why I write so much about them. I want my grandchildren to know about their great-great-great-grandparents. And so I include those stories in my novels. And I want to say I was here, and this is, this is my contribution to my time here on Earth. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Toni Morrison is one of my favorite authors. Um, I just think she's amazing. The first book that I read by her was Sula. And I, and I read this book once every few years. I just finished um, listening to it on Audible. And it's the first time that I listened to any of her books on Audible. And um, Toni Morrison narrates all of her novels. And it's just it's mesmerizing. <laughs> so I'm going to read from Sula. The chapter is 1937. Accompanied by a plague of robins, Sula came back to Medallion. The little yam-breasted shuddering birds were everywhere, exciting very small children away from their usual welcome into a vicious stoning. Nobody knew why or from where they had come. What they did know was, was that you couldn't go anywhere without stepping in their pearly shit, and it was hard to hang up clothes pull weeds, or just sit on the front porch when robins were flying and dying all around you. Although most of the people remembered the time when the sky was black for two hours with clouds and clouds of pigeons, and although they were accustomed to excess in nature, too much heat, too much cold, too little rain, rain to flooding, they still dreaded the way a relatively trivial phenomena could become sovereign in their lives and bend their minds to its will. In spite of their fear, they reacted to an oppressive oddity or what they called evil days with an acceptance that bordered on welcome. Such evil must be avoided, they felt, and precautions must naturally be taken to protect themselves from it. But they let it run its course, fulfill itself, and never invented ways either to alter it, to annihilate it, or prevent its happening again. So also were they good people. Can you tell me why you chose that? Because I think it's, it reads like poetry. It reads like poetry, number one. Number two, I'm fascinated by birds. <laughs> and... And birds show up in my novels quite often. But yeah, I think mostly because everything she writes, it just, re it just reads like poetry to me. Can you read something that you wrote that maybe changed a lot from the first draft or was hard to write or something that you're pleased with? I will read the brief history of You Can Be from Praise Song for the Butterflies because it, it 
did take some quiet time and reflection <laughs> to come up with this fictitious country. And um, like I said in the beginning of the interview, originally the story was set in Ghana. So this was a um, last-minute addition. A Brief History of Ukembe. Shaped like a kinked index finger, confined between Ghana and Togo, Ukembe is a nation about which very little is known before the 17th century when the first Portuguese colonists arrived. That said, there are signs of an early British presence, possibly explorers who succumbed to malaria and or were murdered by the inhabitants, who were in fact explorers in their own right, having trekked to Ukembe from regions that are now part of Ghana, Benin, Namibia to the south, and as far east as Tanzania. The Portuguese used Ukembe as a slave trading post for Europe and the Americas until the Slave Trade Act of 1807, at which point the Portuguese all but abandoned the colony, save for the criminals and undesirables they deserted upon their departure. The Portuguese withdrawal left the region vulnerable, ultimately making way for the German Empire to invade Ukembe in 1875 and place it under military rule. Many Ukembans were subject to forced labor, building infrastructure, and mining diamonds and bauxite. Following World War I, the Germans relinquished control of the territory, and the U.S. swooped in to fill the void. The Bureau of Ukembe Affairs was soon established and charged, charged with creating schools to educate and assimilate the children to U.S. standards. Christianity was deemed the new American territory's official religion. The worship of African gods and deities was outlawed and made punishable by flogging. Children were forbidden to speak Wele, their native language. If discovered doing so, the parents of those children, children were flogged. If the infraction happened a second time, the tongues of the violators were removed. A third infraction was punishable by death. Tell me why you chose that. Because I think it mirrors what happened, what truly happened. I mean, during slavery time, what happened in this country with um with the Native Americans, this idea of um, assimilation, um, it was brutal. It was brutal. And um, I think that I needed my readers to understand that. And I think that people who were unaware of it, I, I feel like they needed to know that. Where do you write? I write at home mostly, um, where I live. I have written elsewhere. I mean, I've gone to um, artist residencies, and and so I've been able to write there. It takes a minute, though, to kind of find my footing when I leave my domestic space. But I can't write in Starbucks and open spaces like that. I find that very fascinating when people... Um, say that they can write with all this activity 
going on around them. I have to be in complete silence so I could um, hear what my, what my characters are trying to tell me. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love to travel. I usually um, go down to Barbados where uh, my father's family is from and hang out on the beach with my friends and that makes me extremely happy. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, early in my career, um, I had two or three people reading for me. So my sister and two girlfriends would read. Um, but I got to say that the last three or four, three novels, I guess, the first person to see the fourth draft is my um, editor. How have you dealt with rejection? I think that I've dealt with it fairly well. <laughs> I understand that rejection is a part of life. So I'm always looking uh, for the lesson. You know, what have I learned from this particular um, rejection? And it's not, it's not always easy to receive. So instead of complaining, I usually take 24 hours to process it. Um, I look at all that I've accomplished, and that reminds me that it's not really that bad. And not, and not everything is for everybody. And so if I didn't receive this award, it just wasn't my time. And, I, and you know, I'm, I'm always happy for the person who did receive something that I aspire to, to receiving. And I think that makes it so much better to, to, um, to deal with. If you, you have to rejoice. You have to rejoice in other people's happiness. And what is your favorite word? Oh, can I say that word? Oh, yeah. I may not be able to say that word. Can I say that word? You can say any word. <laughs> I can say that. Fuck is my favorite word. <laughs> oh, I say it when I'm happy. I say it when I'm sad. I say it when I'm angry. So I think that is like my all-time favorite word. Oh. It has so many meanings and carries so, so many emotions in those four little letters. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Bernice McFadden, author of Praise Song for the Butterflies. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.